Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Peter, the president of Meta Strategies and the author of the book, Getting to Nimble. And we discuss how large enterprises can digitally transform to stay competitive in modern times. Why focusing on helping others is the best path for career success and how to be a world-class executive and a great parent at the same time. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Dude, this is great. You've been writing a book, man. I have, yeah. Even finished one. Nice. What is it? Yeah. Tell me about it. So it's called Getting to Nimble. And the idea behind it, Joel, is um, for organizations, especially those, although not exclusively those, before born before the digital age, um, what are the sorts of things they need to do in order to modernize? Uh, you, you know, the, the pace of change is so dramatic now. The number of once great organizations that have fallen by the wayside due to, due to their inability to modernize their practices uh, is growing. And the, the rapid pace in which uh, new companies are, are rising to take their place means that there's both creative destruction as well as creative innovation that is happening, cre just creation and growth that is happening such that if you're an older organization especially, you need to rethink people, processes, technology, the ecosystem uh, that you develop as well as your strategy in order to better compete in the modern times. And so that's really the the crust, uh, the, the thrust rather of the book. I've got so many questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Um, can we give, but like before we go, because I know you because you were already on the podcast before and stuff, but can you give like your background story real quick? Happy to. Happy to, Joel. Thank you. So, uh, I've, for the past 20 years, I have um, run a firm called Meta Strategy that I founded. Uh, I'm based here in Washington, D.C. I spend a lot of time advising technology executives, uh, CEOs of tech companies, uh, CIOs, CTOs, CDOs of big private sector organizations as well around the world. I'm a Forbes columnist for the past nine years, about 660 or 70 columns there. Uh, uh, I host my own podcast as well called Technovation for the past 13 years, uh, 560 or so of those in in uh, in the can. Uh, the book that I just referenced is my third, uh, Getting to Nimble. My first two, uh, world class IT and implementing world class IT strategy, and then I'm, I, I curate a number of conferences uh, around the world as well. You're the man. You're like the you're like the the godfather of like the technology podcast. I look up to you. <laughs> That's very kind. It means a lot coming from you, Joel, with all that you've accomplished here. I talked to uh, Art Hugh, who we both have had on a yes, couple times. Lenovo. He came on and he said, "Peter High is a master interviewer." I was like, "I know. <laughs> He's awesome. You are a great speaker." Wow. I really admire Art, man. He's he is phenomenal yeah. at speaking. He is, and he's so knowledgeable. He has had such a remarkable impact at Lenovo, such an interesting company. He's kind of uh, during normal times, he's, he spends sort of half his time in Beijing, half half his time in the U.S. He's a font of knowledge about the economies in both places, the political and economic systems in both places. I I lean on Art for a lot of a lot of knowledge. With your guest, right? You've done like so many uh, so many episodes. Like, how do you? How do you like keep in touch with your guest? 
Yeah, well, uh, so uh, there are a lot of them are people that I know well. And so for many of them, they, they will be, although it's certainly not all of them, there'll be people that, I may, that I've met beforehand. Uh, maybe they've joined me at one of our conferences. Maybe we've, uh, I've written about them in some way. At a minimum, of course, I would have done some homework on who they are and what they do, these sorts of things. And, you know, on the back end of our conversations, I love to, at a minimum, follow up with them just to, in terms of the response that the, the podcast has gotten, uh, maybe talk to them a little bit further about some of the things that they they described in the podcast that I found particularly interesting or salient, and, um, and then find out other ways in which I might be helpful to them, whether it's, you know, bringing part of my ecosystem to them, introducing them to somebody who might be of interest, or, you know, providing them an insight or an answer to a question, um, continuing to involve them in the various things that I'm curating, again, whether it's uh, small or large gatherings of technology executives, have them attend, have them speak, especially if they're they're particularly insightful, someone like Art, for example. Um, so there are a variety of ways in which we can we can engage on the on the other end of an interview like this. Tell me about the events that you do. I'm curious. I don't know much about them. Well, so we, we have smaller gatherings of, of um, just like a handful of people that we'll do, especially during these times. We've, we've done more of them in the past year just because there's so much that we can learn from each other. There's so much that has been new to us, needless to say, that it's great to be able to test hypotheses and assumptions and just share experiences, commiserate, you know, count, count blessings with as many people as we can uh, in order to ensure that the path that we're going down, since so much of it is is new and unprecedented, at least within our lifetimes, I have found that gathering these sorts of you know executives for that kind of conversation to be really therapeutic in a variety of ways. So that's one thing that I might do with some frequency and I'll you know ga gather just sort of a handful of people here and there. And then occasionally we also do our sort of broader summits, which will be like 100 or 150 people together. And um, you know we'll, we'll have a sort of bigger agenda, bring in some of the people that I, I think are the particularly uh, good storytellers from the, among the people that I've gotten to know. And we'll have a series of conversations over across a, a few different hours and hopefully enlighten some people who've joined us. So you have, is this like something that you do for another organization curated or is this your company that's curating these small events? Both, both. So I, I founded Forbes CIO Summit Series back in November of 2014 and led that for about six years. I still do a lot of events for Forbes um, associated with a variety of different topics, but, but but tends to focus again on the on the the digital or technology leaders as the as the folks who are both on the virtual for the time being the virtual stages uh, as well as in the audience. And then and then I also have events that uh, that I curate that are our own as well, Meta Strategy Zone, you know, digital symposiums or summits. Oh, nice. Well, when those things are happening, let me know. We can like push out content and help you out. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate that, Joel. That'd be great. Yeah. We like to, everyone that I come across, I've just found that if we just help people, then we don't know how it comes back to us, but it just comes back to us in a positive way. So it's honestly the easiest position to take. I think having a long-term um, mutual value in, in, in the, as the, the way to think about this. I think the extent to which anyone senses sort of short-termism, um, you can sort of, you can sniff that out and it can be successful for a time. But I think the way you described, you know, building relationships that are, 
you know, meant to be across years as opposed to transactional as quickly as possible is really the key. So like you, I, lo I love to talk to people and ask them, how can I be helpful? Not, not expecting um, to be paid for that help, but to, you know, how can I, how can I make your life uh, uh, easier in some way? How can I introduce you to someone who would be of interest to you? How can I offer an insight? Is there a hypothesis you want to test? And if I have a conclusion or if I have a perspective, I'll lend it. Or if I know somebody who has an even better one, I'll do that as well. And I think if you do that enough, you know, just as you know, I'm, I'm in some ways sort of paraphrasing what you you mentioned. I think if you put enough good karma out into the world, then some of that comes back uh, in in terms of you know revenue opportunity for 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 your organization as well. Do you mention that at all in the book? So I talk a lot about e ecosystems. I think I have a chapter on ecosystems, and the idea there, Joel, is that um, competition is much less today, company to company. It is ecosystem to ecosystem. So who are you marshalling as your partners? And even, I mean, a lot of this is is easy to explain. You know, the supply chain of an organization, the joint ventures that companies might put together in order to bring a, a product to life. And, uh, you know, the, the, the contracted help that you have to fill in gaps on your team, whether it's skill gaps or a, a, a sudden need that you can't hire for readily. But that's just scratching the surface. I mean, finding these broader ecosystems, uh, assembling them, and then putting them to work for insight and innovation is really important. And I, I focus on a few of those. First of all, customers of your company. Very important to focus on that from an ecosystem perspective. You know co-create with them, uh, innovate with them, especially those that are the most trusted among them. Uh, I talk about the need to collaborate to a greater extent with peers. So put together your own sort of kitchen cabinet, if you will, a personal board of sorts to whom you can turn when you have a, 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 a thorny problem that you need to solve, or again, a hypothesis that you want to test. Venture capitalists to understand where smart money is being spent and why. And uh, to understand more about, you know, entrepreneurs you might wish to get to know, or at a minimum, sort of you know, technologies that are on the rise or on the fall, as the case may be. Executive recruiters to understand further uh, sort of people trends, whether it's skills on the rise, skills on the fall, org changes that, that are afoot. I mean, naturally, executive recruiters are also good at helping you find that next opportunity if, if, that's, uh, if that's of interest. But I think it's important to invest in that, in those relationships, even besides that, for the wonderful insights that you can draw. And then lastly, strategic vendor partners. Really important. If you're going to be hiring a strategic vendor partner to do something for you, presumably you're doing so because of the wealth of experience that they have. If you're not tapping into that in some meaningful way to elicit better insights from them, well, then you're getting only part of the value you should out of those relationships. So that's how I define kind of you know, assembling these ecosystems for greater value and greater insight, and hopefully a greater pace to innovation as a result of that. Okay. You mentioned individuals building up their own network. I want to dive a little bit deeper on that. Let's say the first sort of persona I want to talk to is maybe like a isolated type CTO executive, right? Like they're kind of new, they're growing, they don't really have a network. They know that they've heard this. How do they, how do they even start? How does a CTO even start? Well, actually, so what's interesting about that, Joel, is I the wonderful things about the the personas that you and I deal with, the role, the, the leaders that you and I deal with, is there's so much that they have in common. There are differences, of course, across companies and industries and geographies, but there's a lot that's common there in terms of the problems that they're facing, the the victories that they can claim. And I have found what's so interesting is I think, you know, I had a natural uh, tendency in the early stages of bringing people together, of thinking about, okay, how do I get 
people from the same industry all in the same room, for example, because there's so much that that they can share. There's a language they have. There's metrics that they're keeping, et cetera, that'll be com common. But as I fan that out, I recognize that, look, if you get a technology or digital leader of a B2B or a B2C company or a business to government, a B2G company, there's actually so much overlap in that Venn diagram in terms of the things that they're thinking about that oftentimes, you know, there's just a tremendous amount they can glean from there. And I would actually argue that in many ways, the most innovative ideas come from translating from a peer, a very different application of an idea, translating that back into your environment, because after all, it's less less of a chance that your competitor is thinking exactly like that uh, at the same time. So I mentioned that as a backdrop to your specific question, Joel, because I think that at the end of the day, CTOs, CIOs, CDOs, they are tremendously collaborative. And I think generally speaking, wish to learn from each other. That's the other kind of great insight from that is these gatherings are always very helpful because they, they really do like to network. They, they like to understand and commiserate and, and, and you know, sort of talk about silver linings that, 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 that they, they, the blessings they can count from, from recent experiences and hear from each other because there's always that opportunity you'll get that nugget two or three that you can bring back into your own, uh, your own organization. But then I would say the other side of it, Joel, a thread certainly through the the early part of this conversation is you know give to get like you know find find opportunities to to be the first to 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 reach the handout with some value you know be the first to ask the question as to how can i be helpful to you and you know without any without any expectation of something in return and you know you do that enough just as you said earlier right you do that enough and then good things happen back for you as well and selfishly it's definitely a way to like deal with stress or anxiety. Anytime I find myself focusing too much on myself or what I'm doing, I just look around and be like, who, who can I help? <laughs> let me go, let me go help somebody else right now. I'm not, I don't want to think about me right now. <laughs> so good, good way to think about it. Yeah. I don't know if it's healthy. We'll see, <laughs> but it seems to be pretty good. You know, you pour into other people and you care about other people. And the fact that that makes, you know, anxiety kind of go away. That's, I don't think that's a that's an unhealthy thing, but I'll definitely be the one to run the experiment and find out. I'll report back to you, Peter, <laughs> in five years. Hey, if it's reducing your stress, then it can't be a bad thing, Joel. And if you're you're making if you're doing good things for other people, I think that is you know you're it's like you're planting seeds across the across the landscape, and a lot of that will bear fruit for you. Yeah, it's a better way to live life. Now I'm curious Indeed. with your book. So you've written a couple books. Why? Like, what caused you? Prompted you to write this one? A couple different origin stories there. One that might be particularly interesting, um, you'll be the judge, Joel, but uh, is, so I was probably three years ago, uh, and this is a CTO you should get to know if you don't know him. He's a CIO and CTO of CarMax. Shami Mohammed is his name. Really just super talented guy. He's been in role for quite some time now. And I uh, was having a great conversation with him in Richmond where that, uh, um, that company is headquartered and uh, on the record. And at the conclusion, I was asking him a question about trends. You know, what are some trends as you look, so let's say three years out uh, that excite you? And as I recall, he offered something about blockchain and an idea about the application of machine learning back into CarMax. But he concluded uh, his answer by saying, and I'll paraphrase though a fairly tight paraphrase, you know, if I'm looking three years out, uh, the pace of change today is so fast that the thing that's going to be the number one priority or curiosity, maybe something you and I can't even name today. 
And so what I really need to do is foster nimbleness in my organization. Um, and I really liked that framing of, of the responsibility of the technology leader, of fostering this nimbleness and, and ability to seize opportunities more readily as they present themselves, to stave off issues as they will continue to present themselves, each of those uh, faster than ever. I mentioned at the outset of my book, you know, this is the fastest that business has ever been, and yet today is the slowest it will be from this point forward. And we need to kind of orient ourselves that the change is going to be coming faster and faster as the days wear on. So that 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 concept of nimbleness, I really liked. I, I called the latest book Getting to Nimble as a result of that. And I, I then pursued a variety of conversations with leaders to try to suss out, uh, and, and of course, did a lot of thinking on my own as to what what constitutes nimbleness. If, if in, your goal is, in fact, to stop being the boat anchor that is pulling this giant ship of yours, your company, back, but instead to be the engine in the rudder, then what are the factors that will facilitate that? And thus the wheels got going and, and uh, in the ensuing months, uh, ensuing years, uh, the, the third book was born. I like it. And I'm, it's helping me as we continue to talk. I'm, I'm really still trying to wrap my mind around what you do. <laughs> and here's why. <laughs> here's why. I'm, I'm only 33, right? My background is building some technology with a small team. Maybe the largest one was I grew it up to 30 and then left. So I was building stuff, selling it off and leaving and building. I was really into that. And so I have never been like the CTO of an enterprise who would need a strategy company or something of that nature. So I'm, I'm just trying with my lack of experience, I'm just trying to understand like what's a project that you've done or like, how do you help a company? Yeah. Great, great question. Um, so I, a lot of what we do on our advisory side is to bring uh, the disciplines of business strategy to the technology function. Let me take you a, a little bit back in time, Joel. It wasn't that long ago. So I, I'm I'm 47. I'm a bit older than you are. Uh, I've been uh, started my company 20 years ago, as I mentioned, when I was 27. And when I started the company 20 years ago, the average IT organization was pretty definitively a support organization in the company that they served. So if you were the chief technology officer or the chief information officer, you were a chief in name, but probably not a peer to the other chiefs. I mean, there are other chiefs that also had this sort of lesser than status as well, but the CIO, CTO certainly was among those. And, you know, different language that they spoke, different set of capabilities. They likely had a different education than the rest of the organization. There are all sorts of stereotypes that proliferate about them being more uh, like navel gazers or or uh, being more introverted than perhaps some of the other bigger you know personalities that tend to become CEOs, certainly, uh, to say nothing of like CMOs and other kind of externally facing functions within the organization. And what has happened across the past couple of decades uh, in drips and drabs, and I'd say in the first decade of my doing these things, and certainly with an unbelievable momentum in the past uh, 10 years, really because of, among other things, the consumerization of IT devices like this that make us all technologists, all of a sudden, technology became more front and center, all the more so in the past year, Joel, this the whole time that your beard has been growing has been <laughs> a time that CIOs, CDOs and CTOs have been advancing tremendously as sources of resilience for their organizations. And so as that journey has continued for this discipline to become much more strategic, to become a chief, not just in name, but in terms and also in prestige indeed, I we, we brought a lot of business disciplines to the technology function to literally formulate plans to, to think more 
more strategically about the future. So where is your business as a whole going in the next three, five, two years? And what are the sorts of things as a technology leader you need to do in order to ensure that it's it's heading there as, as rapidly as possible, with as much security as possible, uh, with a whole range of innovations, which of course today are increasingly at the intersection of technology and fill in the blank other discipline across the organization. So how are you fostering those partnerships with your colleagues um, for better insight towards innovation as well and helping helping leaders literally formulate those plans so you know what is the strategy what is true north for our organization and what's a way of packaging that together so that everyone whether that's tens of people or hundreds of thousands of people can understand what the future holds so we're all pushing in the same direction so strategy wasn't necessarily i would say the average it department not so long ago was much more tactical than it was strategic now definitively they're becoming much more strategic and then i'll add one or if you'll indulge me one moment longer joel i'll say the other uh, interesting change has been the primary domain of technology leaders were, were often you know identifying areas to cut costs or to to foster efficiency and now so many more of them are focused on both sides of the profit equation, revenue augmentation in the form of new products, in the form of better customer experience, et cetera, in addition to having the bottom line, the, the efficiency um, aspects to the role as well. And that's really a killer combination for those who can, can find that. So we, we, we do a lot of work in helping IT leaders, technology leaders, digital leaders on that journey within their organizations. And what's, what's, what's the smallest company you've worked with? Like what size are they? <laughs> We rarely work for um, companies less than a billion dollars in revenue. We have so the smallest companies would. Um, we've been doing some work in our West Coast office out of out of uh, the Bay Area with with what we refer to as and others have referred to as startup to scale up operations. So maybe they're in the hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, but they've gotten there very very quickly and they're within um, sight of getting to a billion dollars. In many cases, actually, interestingly enough, in those cases, it's understanding. You know, oftentimes these organizations grow so fast that they have the lack of process or lack of governance of an organization that's an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude smaller, whether you use revenue or people as the um, as the way of measuring that. And so a lot of what we're doing is helping them add structure so that they can more competently get from, let's say, half a billion dollars to a billion and beyond, because that sort of point of pride of being very entrepreneurial and you know not having a lot of bureaucracy or red tape, all of a sudden you realize, wait a second, good governance practices are not bureaucracy or red tape. They're actually what help you go faster. An analogy I always lo love to use relative to that, Joel, is the brakes of the car. If you ask a, a person very quickly, what are the brakes of the car used for? They'd say, of course, to stop the car. I would say they're used to allow you to go fast because you can't go 70 miles per hour on the highway unless you've got great brakes. And that's what good governance does. Uh, so a lot of these organizations that we'll work with that are that are of a smaller size relative to our typical portfolio of Fortune 500 companies, as those who we advise, are, are oftentimes looking for that kind of guidance and counsel. How do we add more structure and governance to make sure that we are building not for where we are today or where we were yesterday, but where we'll be in five years, which will be a lot bigger than we are now. I love it. No, I'm really starting to understand this and we'll have to have you on again next year so I can even go deeper into understanding. <laughs> I get it. Though. I get it. Right. These problems emerge as these as they grow to a certain scale and then you happen to solve these problems. So when people are mm -hmm. experiencing them, they'll connect with a company like yours and rock and roll. I want to talk about some human stuff real quick. Is that OK? Sure. Awesome. OK, Fire so away. these are always fun questions because I don't know like how well they'll go. <laughs> <laughs> but I just try to be like open and real and stuff. So you've, you're very successful in your career. And with that comes financial success. And that also comes freedom. 
um, which can be a little bit scary, especially like the first time you start to experience, you know, financial freedom, like I could be doing anything I want to do. What do I do now? There's a lot of options on the table, right? So, and then you start thinking about, um, you know, direction ahead once you've gotten that freedom, but you will also think about what your purpose is in life. You'll start to think a little bit about that. Like what's driving you? Cause at the beginning, it's pretty easy. Like, at least for me, I was broke. Like, <laughs> right at the i grew up poor so like my thing was go out there and be useful and figure out how to make money so that was a driver and then after you get to a certain point of making money you're like okay well why am i doing this right and so i'm curious like do you think about that or what have your thoughts been as you've progressed through your levels of success yeah it's it's a great and very deep question jewel to say the least and i i do think about it an awful lot like you in my, the early stages of my career i was of course hoping to make money hoping to provide some modicum of of security for myself eventually for my wife for my family as 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 i got married and had children what was the real blessing is as i grew a firm i realized that if a lot of what i'm focused on are the most important people to me uh, let me sp speak professionally and primarily and get into the personal side as well if you'd like to but you know i i'm blessed with a, a number of leaders around me who've been with me for 10 years 16 years you know a good portion of the history of my firm i i've found that if i'm really focused on making them successful my success will come it's not like I don't focus on things I need to be doing or the next hill that I should be climbing as a leader of my firm. But if I'm also making sure that I'm planting seeds for a whole range of people within my firm, that I'm, you know, thinking about being a an advisor or a, a trusted trusted voice to the junior people in my team, um, helping them develop shortcuts towards success, you know, asking them comparable questions to the one you've just asked, you know, what 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 you know what what do you want out of life? What are you seeking? Where do you want to be in 10 years? And helping them provide some of those those shortcuts based on the lessons that I have. I find that really gratifying. So I, I do really find I, I still to this day um, across my firm have one on one uh, conversations with with everyone in the firm once every six weeks, um, in some cases more frequently than that. And a lot of it is I, I'm trying to use those sessions not only to get to know each of these people and what motivates them and and but also to help them because I, you know, so much of of my own pathway has been facilitated by the wisdom of others. Each of us, of course, stand on the shoulders of others, whether it's our, our parents, our families, but certainly a series of mentors. I'm sure you would highlight a number in your on, on your path, just as I can in mine, Joel. Look, if you're standing on somebody else's shoulders, then I think it's incumbent upon you to make sure that you've got strong shoulders that others can stand on as well. So I do think an awful lot about, you know, in a people business, especially, how do you make people fulfilled in the work they do? Look, not every day is going to be your favorite day. Not every assignment you have will be your favorite assignment. But I want to try to create the kind of environment where you have a lot more great days then you have less than great days. You have a lot more great assignments and fun work to do than you have not the opposite of those things. You know, as a business leader, we have an influence on those things. And so that's where I, I spend a lot of my time. On the personal side. So for me, and that was a great answer, by the way, I don't mean to, I just, I'm so excited to, <laughs> to ask you the next question. All right. So <laughs> from like a personal side, uh, some, some background. So building this business the past three years, um, and also my youngest child is about three and a half years old. Uh, and How many do you have, Joel? Remind I have me. two. I have a daughter two. who's about, she's turning four in like September and my son just turned two in February. So excellent. they're little banshees right now, but I love them <laughs> to death. Right? But the first three years, uh, two and a half, three years, I pretty much ignored them because I was just trying to build this business. And I sort of justify it to myself, like working seven days a week and all of this. 
that it's so I can provide security. But at the same time, like, I don't know, I was, I was just maturing. Right. And then I saw this movie, I can't remember what it was, but I saw this business character in it and he had a lot of money and he was older and, but he didn't have family or he had some, but they had no relationships. And he sort of realized that he kind of missed out on his kids growing up. And I just decided like in that moment, like, I do not want to be that person. So like I sold my car, got like a, a truck and a camper. I'm like, we're going to start going camping. We're going to start spending time together. I looked up, you know, I, I had met my wife at a church. And so I, we had stopped going when we had our kids. So I was like, we're going to go get involved in the community because the churches, they just give back to the local community. We're going to go get back involved in the community. And I started really trying, you know, about eight, eight to 10 months and I'm still working hard. Right. But I'm taking those weekends with my family and things of that nature. But all, all of, all of this to say, like trying to figure out, you know, how to balance your family or how to think about your relationship with your family. What sort of evolution have you gone through? Yeah, it's like, again, a great, a great question. Something I think an awful lot about, especially during you know, normal times, I travel a lot with my work. So it's an added, uh, very, perhaps you do, you did during, uh, during times where that was more possible as well, Joel. So it, it's an added detail, of course, if I'm away that I'm really, you know, not with them, uh, sometimes for, you know, several days in a week. And so a couple things that I've, I've, uh, worked on, uh, number one, and actually this is some, the way that I, I manage my business life as well as my personal life, but I try to think about how do I have kind of, uh, how do I maximize the value in, as I don't mean to make this uh, overly like Machiavellian in the, or, or, or scientific to the way that I've designed, designed this, but like, uh, let me give you an example. When my ki kids were young, I would only exercise when I was with a child, pushing them in a running stroller, putting them in a pod behind my bicycle and, and riding with them. So exercise, which I needed to do, we all do, was was by definition with a child. When, when I could, putting on my, I had this carrier on my shoulders, we go on hikes together. We would, uh, so if I'm up early or if I'm, you know, up late or, or during during a time when they are, they're awake, uh, my exercise would also be with a child and always with conversation, always pointing out the flower, the animal, the neighbor, you know, et cetera, and, and ha trying to have really good, meaningful conversations. You know, quantity and quality really intersect in those younger years. I would also say really important, and this is so difficult in this day and in this day and age, but being very present when you're with your family, be with your family. When you're not, then really focus on work. A couple different principles I've tried to keep in my in my life. You know, once I'm done with work on Friday, I try not to touch work until Sunday. And so if I can, you know, get out of work at, at six o'clock or six thirty on a on a Friday night, I try to completely turn off. The, the great thing about having a Saturday that's that's largely work free, if you look, if you have an unbelievably busy week, then, you know, maybe lean a little bit further on your Sunday, but really try to take that Saturday as a full and the Friday evening as family time, really immersing yourself in all that they're doing. I certainly don't mean to say that every Sunday that I'm working all day and, you know, I try to take as much of the Sunday as well. And then I, the other thing that I would say is I try to take the period, I, I'll, I as perhaps you do as well, Joel, I, I oftentimes uh, stop work, uh, have dinner, spend time with the family, and then go back to work. And I've really tried to make sure that from the period of dinner until kids' bedtime, it's getting now that my kids are 15 and 13, it's, it's a little bit of a different structure as they've got a lot of homework of their own to do. So oftentimes we'll be working right next to each other, uh, me, on, me on my work, they, they on their homework, uh, or reading books together, et cetera. But, but really trying to have that segment of each evening that I'm here that is with them. 
And then I'll just let me add another detail, Joel. Uh, probably a good statistic for you to hear as early in, in fatherhood as you you uh, you are, but one that always rings in my ears as I contemplate these things. Um, and this is something somebody told me, not research that I've done. I'll, I'll, I'll preface it this way, but apparently when one's child goes to college or leaves leaves the nest, uh, if they do go to college. Um, you, you at that point have spent 92% of all the time you will have spent in, in their entire life is done. Uh, and if you think about it, that sounds like unbelievable. When I, when I was told that statistic, I, I was really taken aback and I was thinking about it a little bit, but if your child goes to college in a different city, if your, if your child ends up living in a different city, as, as I do, I don't, I'm not in the city I grew up in, you know, maybe you'll see them on a, a Christmas or a Thanksgiving or another holiday. Uh, maybe you'll have a, take a, take a vacation with them in the summertime. But, uh, you know, these are precious, precious times. And so it's, I try to factor that in. Like you, Joel, I work very hard. I work long hours. Um, I, I travel when it's safe to do so. But I really try to make sure that my kids know that when I'm with them, that, that they have my full attention. I'll, I guess, sorry, since you're interested, I'll add one other detail. A, a law school for, um, classmate of my father's, my father who passed away five years ago, uh, this law school classmate of his is in his mid 80s now. He's been a font of knowledge for me. He's been a real source of wisdom for me. Uh, he's very successful himself. His brother is very successful. They seem to be very happy people from what I can tell. And I once asked him, what's the secret? Like, what did your parents do to set you and your brother off on the journeys that you were on? I, I love, as, as clearly you do, Joel, of, of asking people that are older than me for you know their wisdom to, to again, get shortcuts in my, in my own pathway. And what he said to me was very impactful. He said, my father always made it very, his father, his mother did not work, so he's referring to his father. My father always made it very clear that work is necessary and that there's actually joy that can come from work. Um, and so he would explain what he was doing and why he was doing it. And so I was never, he's speaking for himself, I, I was um, never kind of scared of a professional life. It was something I was looking forward to and seeing the joy it brought my, my father. And my brother and I have always taken that to heart in the way in which we thought about our careers. And that was super impactful for me, Joel, because what I would do, let's say during traveling times, which will be here again before too long, I would imagine, at the, on a Sunday evening, I'd say to my boys, you know, look, I'm gonna be traveling Monday to Thursday this week. You know, all things being equal, I would I'd prefer to be with you guys. But, but first of all, um, I, I need to do this work so we can have our house, so we can you know take a trip from time to time, et cetera. But at the other time, let me tell you about some of the things I'm really excited about. I'm gonna be interviewing this really interesting person. I'm going to learn from this, this other executive. I'm gonna be taking a tour of this, this company to see how it works. And I'd kind of let them into my world as to the things that excite me. And I'd come back on a Thursday and they'd ask me questions. What was that guy that you talked about? What was he like? What was that factory that you went to see to give get a tour of? What was that like? And all of a sudden there's kind of a different kind of connection that they're learning from the urban early age as to what work should entail. And that's really, it's made a lot of difference, I must say. You're blowing my mind, Peter. What, <laughs> what that does is it takes work from being like this reason why dad's not there to this relationship of them understanding and getting to know you better. You've turned it brilliant. Yeah, right? You've turned it completely. It's You can't just be like, oh, working by talking to them about it. And you know what? It's really just that extra little bit. One thing that stuck with me early on when I had kids was I heard somebody say something along the lines of the, the one rule that they had when raising their kid was when the, the kid walks up to them and needs them, that they'll just pay attention to them, like full attention. They won't be like, oh, you know, go away. Or 
because often the kid only wants you for like five minutes. They have very short attention spans. They want you to chase them around the room or like pretend to eat the fake pizza or whatever, whatever it is. <laughs> and so I started doing that like with the kids. Man, I'll tell you what, it's so true. Every time, you know, they walk up to me and they want something, it's, it's less than a five minute interaction. And then they're off doing their own thing, playing with their toys for, you know, 20 or 30 minutes. So rather than looking at the interruptions of the kids interrupting me from working as like a negative, I'm just like, like, oh, this is, this is going to be five minutes. It's going to be a quick little memory with them. And uh, they, they won't grow up to be a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the funny thing too, and, and Joel, maybe you, your experience was like this pre-COVID, but the fact that we're all in quarantine, I think we all have so much more, you know, uh, there's so much more forgiveness for the fact that like a, a child might run into your room or mine, you know, or a pet or a, you know, I think one of the, there have been a lot of blessings and, and silver linings to what has been a, such an unfortunate circumstance. And it has been, I think, like just a greater degree of humanity in many ways, right? A recognition that, look, I'm at home right now. Perhaps you are as well. And, you know, I've got a, one of my sons is in school. The other one's downstairs right now. There's a chance he could come into this room and, uh, you know, just as somebody might walk into yours and that that's just how how life works these days and i think there's something really really beautiful about that frankly that we we have a different level of 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 acceptance and even of expectation that look you know this is this is who i am who who my family is here's this is where i live you know uh there's something really nice about it yeah Definitely. And it looks really cool. What is that behind you? How did you design that? What is it? <laughs> I wish I designed that. No, I, 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 I used, I used cash to get this. Uh, it's a, it's an Indian piece and it's a room divider. It hides the fact that I'm, I'm working in a room that has a bed behind me, but I do, I do kind of like the effect It sort of a, you know, covers up the, instead of a, instead of a, you know, a different kind of background, it works, works well for me. Oh, that is super cool. Cause to me, it looks like, like a 90 degree angle and that's the corner and there's two walls coming together. That is just really professionally done walls like you went to like a catholic cathedral type thing and said come do that <laughs> over here <laughs> but but room divider the moment you said it <laughs> i get it this is fake yeah actually this is a fake wall right over here ah, it's a okay piece, it's a piece of foam with some um wallpaper type stuff stuck onto it we got it at home depot and uh yeah so our one of our, our producer jay he made it and i kind of wow. i just like photoshopped something i was like can we make the studio look like this and our office has been completely empty. So I just come into an empty office, which is like five minutes from my house. It, it, I felt really bad during like <laughs> the lockdown because everyone I knew, like they couldn't go to their office because they work at big companies or they had so many employees that they felt like it would be irresponsible to like be the only one go. But I'm over here in my life and I like hiring a babysitter and we're like, we just need 10 minutes from the kids on Saturday. We're going to go go over to the office. So um, That's funny. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Off topic. Hey, do you ever talk about the conversation uh, like imposter syndrome? Have you heard this yet? So the, am I familiar with the, the idea of yeah. imposter syndrome? Yeah, I've, I've got some familiarity with it. I've been trying to understand it better because I knew imposter as like, it was like an evil thing. Like I was pretending to be someone else to do evil. I was like, I thought that was the definition. And everyone's going around saying, oh, I have imposter syndrome. I'm not good enough. And I'm like, I'm confused about the meaning of imposter, apparently. <laughs> so I think it's just one of those things that has multiple meanings. Like society kind of just like ran off with it and, it and it became this other thing. But to me, it just sounds like like anxiety. Like when I hear people talk about it, they're like, oh, I feel like I'm not good enough or whatever it may be. That's like the, the chief complaint or I don't deserve this success. And I'm like, that just sounds like general anxiety that or, or self-doubt. It sounds like self-doubt is what you're describing. But apparently 
I, I, I reason I'm bringing it up is because I talked about it for like two or three years saying, I don't get imposter syndrome. And then the other day, somebody connected like the imposter syndrome with the concept of self-doubt. And I was like, that's what it is. It's just a, what people did was they just re, you know how we do as humans, we rebrand words like from generation to generation, everyone, we have new words for the same things. This generation has called self-doubt imposter syndrome when it relates to like professionalism. At least that's my current thought. I didn't know if you, you had a better perspective on that. No, I mean, it, it, I think I think a corollary to that or a related point would be kind of the fake it till you make it um, concept, right? All of us, you know, each of our experiences add, add something to our capabilities, right? And when you're a when you're a, a ambitious 22 year old, um, you may be incredibly bright, but you don't yet have a lot of world experience. And you're, you know, I, I, re I recall my own frustration early in my career, trying to think of like, gosh, how do I how do I get when do I have enough experience to go do something on my own, for instance? And you know, there's that sort of angst there. Now, the other side of it is, I think all of us are in situations where we feel like we may be out of our depths. Should I be in this conversation? Should I be leading this thing? Uh, should Am I right for this promotion? It's actually kind of interesting, uh, not that I'm the, the greatest scholar of Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In, but this is also known, you know, is, has been highlighted as a difference in the way in which um, men and women oftentimes manage their careers, that men will you know, seek a promotion uh, when they are like 75% of the experience uh, necessary for the next level, whereas a woman will wait until she has 100% of that experience. And, um, you know, a lot, a lot of what uh, Sheryl Sandberg proposes in her book is that women ought to, you know, seek those opportunities of of being willing, my words, not not hers, but like of, of having that sort of fake it till you make it. Um, you know, don't fake it when you've got 10% of the experience, but, you know, recognize that there's a lot that, you, you know, you, you can finish off that final, you know, 15, 20%. Once you're in the role, you know, lean towards that role and, and seek to get it. And I, so, yeah, I mean, I think all of us are in, in situations all the time where we wonder, gosh, am I am I the right person to be doing this? Am I the right person? Is this the room I'm supposed to be in? You know, hopefully we encounter enough experiences to recognize, you know, there aren't too many rooms. I may not be the smartest person in the room. I may not be the best storyteller in the room. I may not be the one who's adding the most value in this room. But hopefully, you have enough experiences to recognize. You know, look, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I've been. I'm in this room, and I'll. 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 Uh, I'll make my contribution to it. Um, and I think it's. You know, it's important for us to to push ourselves. You know, there's also a lot of research around people that have some kind of trauma while they're growing up, whether it's like a a parent that passed away, divorce of parents, economic hardship, etc. that oftentimes getting through some of that, not that you would wish any of those things necessarily upon someone, but it's making through some of the uh, making it through some of those things that gives uh, them the confidence to recognize, wow, I can really get past a lot. For me, my parents divorced when I was 10, and it was very traumatic to be perfectly candid, Joel. I, I feel like there, there are very few like periods of my adult life that that are as difficult as what I experienced as a 10, 11, 12 year old. I, I what I've come to realize is having gotten through that, having gotten to the other side of it successfully with a lot of help from other people. Right. But it's given me confidence to recognize, look, I, I can face down the next challenge. It's not going to be nearly as difficult as what my 10 year old self went through. And I think so long as we accrue those kinds of experiences and have enough it can create the distance to to analyze ourselves in that way to recognize gosh you know i've i should be proud of that 
thing that I did or that new accomplishment, or I didn't think I could do that. And it turns out I can, then all of a sudden, I think perhaps the, the whole notion of the imposter syndrome starts to fade away a little bit as, as we gain more confidence. Yes. My parents separated, divorced when I was 11. And then uh -huh. at 12, I got hit by a car and I was in a wheelchair for wow. a year. Yeah. And I had to go oh, through the goodness. process of like learning to walk again. And then it le left me with like a limp that I had for about a decade until this like one person at an office, like brought it up and I didn't even realize I was doing it. And then I started going to physical therapy for several years to like get rid of the limp. Cause I don't, I didn't want to be that Incredible. guy. <laughs> right? I was like, if I knew I had this before I would have like attempted to fix it. And so, yeah, I've, I accredit a lot of my success to difficult moments. My, my sister-in-law asked me to speak to her kids about playing in the street. Cause I got hit by the car playing in the street and about like not doing it or like being extra careful. She goes, tell them how bad it was. And she like asked me to do all of this stuff. And I said, I'm sorry, Vicky, I've been going around for the past year touring in countries, telling everybody about like, <laughs> this is the reason I'm successful. I was like, I don't think I've got a lot of content for them other than it's like kind of painful and disruptive for a year, but it'll turn you into an entirely different person because you, you get, it's really clear. Like when your parents divorced, it, it, it becomes clear that there's, there's two paths. Like you either let the situation like crush you or you own it. And you have to figure out how to like own this and move it forward. And you can't, you don't want to be the person going around for a lifetime blaming a scenario that happened years before you want to go around being the person that says these difficult things happen. I overcame them, you know, beat the odds and now I'm a better person for it. And so you just kind of have to make it black and white like that and choose who you want to be. Amen. Very well said. Very, very well said. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. And then my brother and sister, they didn't have like that much difficulty. And I noticed that like when my mom passed away about three or four years ago, we were like all in the room and it was pretty unexpected, but we got to be there to say goodbye. Um, and they, they were like way more torn up than I was at the time. And I just felt the sense like, all right, I'll be strong, like, and help them through this. And then I, I had my moment later. Right. But it just was this, um, it's a weird thing when we talk about leadership and sometimes moments just happen. And I almost feel like a character in a movie, like the, the events just occurring. And sometimes you just have to step up and be that person. And yeah, I don't know. I'm very off topic here. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> Dude, this is great though. I, I like you so much, Peter. Likewise, Joel. I appreciate it. What a, what a deep uh, conversation it's been. Yeah. Let's wrap up with talking a little bit more about the book. I want to push the book for great. you. I like your thoughts. I, I find myself as a person. I heard Simon Sinek discuss once. He said, like, he likes to bring great ideas forward. And, and I like to find really smart people and help amplify that. Uh, so in the book, if you had, you know, you, you give talks all the time. So you understand that when the person walks out of that hearing you speak for an hour, in three weeks, they're going to remember maybe a con two concepts. And then in a month, they're going to maybe remember like one thing that you said, right? Because it's just how we forget information. So when I give my talks, I think about like the top two or three things that I want the people to remember in six weeks. And I basically just hammer on those different ways. In this book, it's like long-winded way to get to this. In this book, what's like the one takeaway that you want people to have in six months after they read it? So I, I think the one constant in, in life and certainly in business is change. We need to be accepting of that fact, despite the fact that change is not something that most of us crave. We, we like um, our routines. We like, you know, having the certain thing we do at this time of day at that certain place, for example. 
example, that th those are sources of comfort for us. And yet, um, by getting too into our routines professionally, it can have really critical um, and dire consequences. The best performing stock in the S&P 500 of the 1980s was Circuit City. Uh, Circuit City as a retailer in the 1980s, this is pre, you know, just in time inventories, stores were expensive, the capital allocations in a business like that were, were significant. And yet they developed a business model that was revolutionary. A person would come in, a consumer electronics business would come in for a television and go out with a VHS, uh, you know, VCR, a, uh, you know, peripherals to help with sound. And all of a sudden these things they didn't even know they needed are, are making their way back to their house. The company was so successful that in the 1990s, they birthed several different other companies, a, a financial services company, believe it or not, a technology company, and the aforementioned CarMax uh, came out of Circuit City. In 2001, Circuit City was featured in one of the best-selling business books of all time, Jim Collins' Good to Great, one of 15, I believe it is, companies that were profiled in that book as having some secrets in terms of the pathway to go from good performance to great performance. That was 2001. Joel, in 2009, the company was liquidated. This is not a good company. This is one of the best companies, the best performing stock of the 1980s, in, you know, considered uh, and included in good to great in the 2000s. And later that decade, it ceases to exist. This is going to be happening more and more as a result of organizations not making the changes that are necessary. Now, thankfully, there are so many great examples that are the, con the, the counter to that. Businesses that appear to be uh, heading into a death spiral or at least languishing for a period who have been able to reinvent themselves, to recognize that they need to be their own biggest competitor uh, and cannibalize some of the things that, uh, that they hold dearly. Companies like Domino's Pizza, who over the course of the past um, decade plus has a better stock performance than Amazon, Facebook, Google, or Apple. Uh, believe it or not. And uh, so much of that can can go back to the fact that they had a remarkable digital transformation. And what I love to say to people upon giving the fuller version of that story, as is told in the book, Joel, is if a pizza company based in suburban Detroit can do that, then why can't yours? And so I hope that people take the lessons, both of the once great companies that are no longer here for their inability to change, and those that appeared to perhaps be the following them to a similar fate, but did in fact uh, change and, and undertake steps that others can easily emulate. I provide the entire framework as to how one does these things in the book itself, that there is a pathway towards a more sustainable, sustainable excellence in your performance and, and therefore a, a successful business for the foreseeable future. I love that. I love that. You so well presented you start with like the dark one and then you flip it around to the positive i love i can't believe that that's a fun fact for me circuits carmax came from circuit city it did yeah is there anything else like how did that happen do you know like the details well, so the, yeah they, the, so that's the interesting thing is the organization uh was so successful and they had such an enormous windfall that they were thinking to themselves what else can we get into and carmax you know it's a, you know you know that business i'm sure right so it's the selling of cars they were great at selling consumer electronics so they got into another field associated with that that they thought um uh, where there was there was some room for some creative thinking. Clearly, they were correct, as that business is doing very well right now. But what's interesting as another layer to the story, again, getting into the, the further details of what I describe in the book, Joel, is while they were founding all these other businesses, 
Best Buy developed the Geek Squad almost the same year, actually. I think it was a year difference from when CarMax was developed. So whereas this company that was legendary in terms of their customer experience and their the wisdom of their sales associates to 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 you know upsell you on the on the peripherals to the thing that you came in to buy. Now, all of a sudden, there's the, the main competitor will do what they did and then bring it all to your house. You know, as consumer electronics proliferate and become much more complex, don't you worry about setting it up. Let's have my employees come and set it up while your, your, your feet are up on the coffee table. And so Best Buy doubled down on customer experiences in ways that Circuit City didn't by virtue of these sort of, you know, uh, other investments and in other areas of, uh, that they were focused on uh, rather than focusing on their traditional knitting. Brilliant. Man, this is great. Peter, we made a podcast, man. How do you feel? That's good. Great conversation. Always yeah. good to be with you, Joel. I appreciate you taking some time with me. Is there anything that uh, we want to get out there that we didn't get out there? No, I, I think I, I, I think we probed a lot of great things. If, if people are interested, I would be delighted for, for them to read my, my new book, Getting to Nimble. Uh, I would love to get their feedback on it. Um, I would also, you know, I, I, if, if, if anyone is inspired as a result, result of the conversation to reach out, they're, they're most welcome to through LinkedIn, through Twitter. I'm at Peter A. Hi uh, at Twitter. Um, but, but Joel, as always, it's a, it's a pleasure to speak with you. I appreciate you taking time with me. Yes, dude, I feel good. When you write these books, last question I have for you. When you're writing these books, do you put your best information like possible in here or do you like leave something to be desired so they contact you? Uh, so this is a fantastic question, Joel. You always want to have your best information in there. And in fact, if, if anything, you want to err on the side of putting enough in there that some people will never contact you. It, it, there are a lot of people that, you know, that, that operate in, in developing a book in saying, look, I'll give them 20% and they'll come to me for the 80%. Let me, let me make like a dramatic example. Uh, and the point is, look, if in the 20%, I can't piece together what it is you're talking about, I can't see myself in the stories you're telling, I don't understand how the methodology that you're describing works, I'm, I'm forget contacting you, I'm putting the book down, right? And so what you wanna do is it needs to be magnetic enough so that people are like charging right through from the front cover to the back and hungry for more information. I, gosh, I'd like to get into the, the weeds of what was described here. You know, hopefully if you've written a good book, you know, if, if uh, tens of thousands of people are going to be reading it, then most of them will never be in touch with you and that's perfectly fine. But, uh, but you wanna get to the point where a lot of people are buying that book such that some number of them are gonna reach out to understand what you can do for them or, or, or how to engage or just, just to reach out to say hello, which is, is in, in itself very gratifying. So yes, I, I would say make sure the best stories are in there. What I what I always say, um, Joel, is the many conversations that I have, uh, conversations like this one, where uh, an interesting person is, is interviewing me. The many interviews that I do, speaking to you know two hundred some global technology executives annually, that's an album that I'm building. The greatest hits go into my book, and that's the way to think about that. Make sure that you are putting absolutely the best stories possible in there because that's what sells sells the books you want to have a lot of books going out into the world so that it's working while you're sleeping thank you so much for listening and if you found this episode useful please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it and if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast either add me on linkedin or send me an email joel at moderncto.io Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.